turn to First uh, Peter, almost to the end of the New Testament, chapter 2. It's page 1014 in these Bibles from the pews. This summer I've been bringing a series of messages from First uh, Peter. But I, I want to mention to you, if you were not here last Sunday night for Andy Wyatt's installation service, uh, Mike Ross preached, and you... You need to go online and go to iTunes and download that sermon from our website or from the site on iTunes, and uh, it was it was excellent. And I, I hope that you will listen to it uh, from last Sunday night. First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse one. I'll read through verse twelve, though we'll just focus on a few particular verses. And so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Much of my childhood, much of the free time of my childhood was spent exploring in the woods and the rugged hills and cliffs and caves which were right out the back door of my family home in northeast Alabama. Uh, Lookout Mountain, that ridge which runs through northeast Alabama and north Georgia to Chattanooga, started right near my hometown. And so I grew up in a, in a, uh, a, a young boy's dream play area. Uh, of kind of exploring limestone outcroppings, which included caves and cliffs, cliffs up to over 100 feet in some cases. And um, one thing from all those many hours, months, it seems like, spent there, that in the world of nature, one thing was very clear to me, nothing is more lifeless than stone (laughs) and rock. You can look at trees, you can even see dead leaves on the ground, you can see insects, 
And there's signs of present or former life, but stone, no, it is uh, lifeless. So it's very odd in this passage when Peter uses the term living stone. He does it first, and now look with me at verse 4 as he describes Jesus, and then we'll see how he describes us. But first about Jesus. He gives a picture. It's a, it's a metaphor of a building. And like all quality buildings of that day, it had a cornerstone. Now, many of you know far more about construction than I, but the cornerstone, according to the dictionary, was a stone forming a part of a corner or an angle in a wall. Now, today we have ceremonial cornerstones, but back then they had a real purpose because if uh, being the most important stone in the building that stone would determine the accuracy of all the other angles of the rest of the building. And so the cornerstone of this building, Peter says, is Christ, is Jesus Christ, and he's called a living stone. Now in the south, we have levels of deadness. If you see a dead um, armadillo on the side, where do those things come from? How do they get here anyway? And, and you say it's dead? Yeah, it's, it's really dead. We've gone to the next level. It's not just dead. It's really dead. And if you really want to emphasize, it's stone cold dead. And so there it is again. What can be deader than a stone? So it's odd. Peter calls Jesus a living stone. Why, Why is he called a living stone? Because he was raised from the dead in victory. So he's not only the cornerstone, he's the living. He's the living stone. But verse 4 goes on to say he was rejected by men. Why? Because he was not the, the kind of Messiah they were expecting. And so they rejected him. They said, we don't want this cornerstone. My cousin built a very nice house years ago, and I remember being there with him uh, within a couple of years after they had moved in. And I was asking him what part he played in the construction. He said, I was at the construction site almost every day, and as trucks would come that would have lumber and would have stone and would have doors and windows and sheetrock, I looked at certain loads and I said, that is not going to my house. You can take that right back to where it came from. You're not putting that here. Yes, you can bring that here. But he was watching to get the best materials and rejecting what he thought was inferior. Well, that was in a positive sense. Here, in a negative sense, they rejected, they rejected Jesus as the stone, as the foundation. But although rejected by men, verse 4 goes on and says, but in the eyes of the Father, he is chosen or elect, and he is precious. What is rejected by us in our fallen condition is considered precious to God himself. Often what, and this is a true principle, not just about that, but often in our day, often what people reject, God loves. And that's true for some of us. You may feel rejected. You may be rejected by others. You may be cast off by others. But that does not mean that God does not have a great compassion on you and see you very different from the way others see you. Now Peter describes us, beginning in verse 5. We are part of a, of a spiritual house, a, a spiritual building. I told you one of the books I'm using in, these, in my preparation is R.C. Sproul's book on 1 Peter. And he observes about this verse that in the New Testament and here in Peter that this is using a metaphor that's rarely applied to the church. Typically in the New Testament, the most frequent reference to the church is a body. 
the body of Christ on earth. And we can all understand that, that, you know, we're eyes and ears and fingers and toes and so forth, and the body functions as a, as a unit, as a unity. Uh, other times it's called the people of God. Sometimes it's called the called out ones. The church is never associated in the New Testament, and it was centuries later that it did happen, that it's associated with a building. Now, most of us, I think, I, my thinking is totally influenced by that. I'll say, well, where's your church? I'm thinking building. When does the, I went to the church to meet. Building, time, institution. That's never how it's used in the New Testament in that sense. But here we have the metaphor of a building. And this is odd even for the New Testament. The church is the communion of saints. So this building that Peter's describing that represents the church is made up not of bricks and mortar, but it's made up of living stones, of people. We are the church because the church is made up of stones that are alive. If you're a believer in Christ, you are part of this building. Verse 5 says, you yourselves, he's speaking to all of them, you also. We are the stones which make it up. So every time a person comes to faith in Christ, you might say another stone is quarried. And God takes his cement and he mortars it in place by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's quarried us from a variety of backgrounds. Some were religious, some were very irreligious, some were very secular, some were very moral, some were publicly immoral, some of us were ignorant, some of us perhaps were quite knowledgeable about the scriptures, some were outwardly rebellious, others were quiet in their rebellion and just inwardly prideful, some were very young, some were very old, and like individual bricks, none of us are beautiful in and of ourselves. Let me explain. It's sad, given the economy, you rarely see uh, residential building sites today. When our children were young, where we were living in Arkansas at the time, it was free entertainment on the weekends to go visit the subdivisions that were being built and go walk through the houses that were still unlocked and open, and we would just go and say, hey, let's, let's look at that one right there, and all these houses would be built. Now, never in that time, despite my wife being very color conscious and very decorative conscious, I'm not, but never did she pick up a brick on one of the pallets out in the front yards or the dirt in the front and say, my, what a beautiful brick. You know, it just, that never happened. We don't do that. We don't pick up a, a stone that's going on a driveway or in a, in a chimney and say, oh, what a beautiful stone that is. No, what makes it beautiful? What makes it beautiful is when the house comes together. The eyes of the architect, they, they put it together. I heard Adrian Rogers years ago, before he died, obviously, say in a sermon, he said as a young pastor, he one of his first churches he pastored was a real small church in Florida, and the church was building an addition. And he... The church was small, and he said in a conversation he had with the architect, he really wanted the architect to understand they did not have much money. And the architect looked at him and said, and I'm going to read it because I can't remember. He said, good architecture is not the arrangement of beautiful materials. It's the beautiful arrangement of materials. Good architecture is not the arrangement of beautiful materials. It's the beautiful arrangement of materials. That's what God is doing. He pulls us in darkness, dead in our trespasses and sins, and he gives us life, and each one of us 
On our own, we're not beautiful, so to speak, in his sight, and yet he puts us together and he builds this building and you stand back and you look and you're you're just amazed. What is God doing? The building is beautiful. Peter goes on and he describes the unbelievers. So he's described Christ. He's described those of us who are believers. And then in verse 8, he continues a description. He started earlier and said they rejected him. But then it says, beginning in 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who dis- do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. To stumble, used here, means just that. It means that you come up against an obstacle and you stop. People who are disobedient, who reject Christ, in many cases have been brought near. They have come near. Some of you may be like that right now. You come here or somewhere else and you hear the Bible taught or preached or you're reading it and you, you think about it. So this, this could be the Christ. This could be, in fact, maybe you're certain that he is. And yet when you come right up against him, it's like an obstacle and you back away. It's like a person who, who's almost engaged, but they can't do it. They can't marry him. They can't commit to Christ. And so they back away. And the danger here, and this gets very serious in this passage, and I'm not trying to be funny at all because it's a weighty, weighty passage. The danger here is that God, God in a sense, says what's the worst thing a child can hear from a parent. Okay, have it your way. And they remove himself. That's usually about the worst thing I could hear as a youngster because I knew at that point my parents were going to let me hang myself so to speak. So they stumble. People who are disobedient to the word of God, they are tripped up by Jesus. So with this, it's no wonder that in the past and right now, the attacks on the Christian faith focus on the word of God, on the scriptures. And if you read that today or you you, you just see what's on the bestseller list and others, the view of the Bible is it's not trustworthy. That's the underlying thing. It's not trustworthy. Either the people who wrote it, that we think wrote it, didn't write it, or they, they weren't who we think they were, or Jesus really didn't live. It was all made up. Every Easter, you can get Newsweek magazine and others, and the new think tank comes out, and they question whether there really even was a Jesus of Nazareth. And then you say, well, if they did write it, we know... I was telling somebody right before the service that they will say, well, in the book of Acts, the Sanhedrin says to Peter and John, they, they, they beat them, and then they refer to them as uneducated and illiterate. And somebody says, well, if they were uneducated and illiterate, how then could Peter write this? Good question, right? Simple answer. They probably meant they were un, uneducated and illiterate in the, in the Old Testament law. They'd not been to rabbi school, so to speak. But people hear these little things and they are persuaded or they think it's a real strong argument. I was sitting with a man at the Rotary Club one day and he just kind of out of the blue just blasted saying, you can take that stupid Bible basically and you make it mean anything you want it to say. That ancient book. And sometimes people say, well, you can't take the Bible seriously because it was written by men and men make mistakes. If men make mistakes, therefore it can't be trusted. Well, let me ask you a few questions if you thought that or are thinking that. Do you have any books in your own library? Were those written by humans? 
If so, do you find any truth in them? Well, is there a reason you think the Bible is less truthful or less reliable than any other book you own? Do people always make mistakes in what they write? Can you believe anything that's been written? Do you, do, do you think that if God did exist, would he be capable of using humans to write down exactly what he wanted to write down? If not, if you don't believe that, why not? I'm just asking questions because I think often, and maybe you're one of those, a person hears a uh, saying, the Bible's not trustworthy. We don't have the original manuscripts that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down. Therefore, it can't be trustworthy. And I want you to question those assumptions. If you're banking your eternity on it, and you're coming up against the rock, the cornerstone, and you're saying it's too much of an obstacle, I'm going to back away, then here's, here's the, uh, the sobering part of this, because you have to deal with Christ. You cannot be neutral and go around him. The worst type of rejection of Christ is the type that has heard the good news over and over and over and still refuses to believe, refuses to submit and obey the message of the word of God. Now, the latter part of verse 8 is one of those that's tempting to pass over as a preacher and say, I'll get to that another time, I'm out of, I'm out of time today, as they were destined to do. Now, as a preacher, I can tell you there are two cliffs I can fall off, one on either side. One danger that we all face as preachers is saying more than the Bible says, of adding my own opinions or thoughts to Scripture. That's a danger. The other is to say less than it says. So, it's here. What does it mean? They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Well, Peter has previously mentioned all in chapter 1, the doctrine of predestination, the sovereign election by which God pours out his grace on those whom he has chosen. Now, this shows that the doc this verse here, this phrase, that the doctrine of predestination is double. Now, I just lost some of you. Not that you don't understand what I said, but you're ready to walk out right now. Double predestination. That involves not only election, but what the Bible calls reprobation. Augustine put it this way in the 4th century. When God was considering the human race, he knew them prior to the fall as a mass of perdition. And out of this mass of fallen, unbelieving, disobedient humans... God chose sovereignly to bestow his saving grace on some, but to allow others to do what they pleased. God simply passed over them. And R.C. Scroll said, they were appointed to a destiny of judgment on the basis of their unbelief, their disobedience, because that is the inevitable conclusion for all who refuse to bow before Christ. Now, Peter mentions this here as a contrast to the very words that come in the next verse. But, but you, believers, now he's off the subject of unbelievers, but you, on a good note, are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a priesthood. In the Old Testament, God's people had a priesthood. It was the tribe of Levi. In order to be ordained as a priest in those days, you had to have been uh, born from that tribe. 
But today, God's people are a priesthood. Each individual believer has the privilege of coming into the presence of God. Now, let me... We throw around the term the priesthood of all believers. That was one of the main truths like justification by faith that came out of the Protestant Reformation. When I moved here years ago, there were books floating around and there was a great controversy at a, I won't name it, but it's a local Baptist university about a half a mile from here. (laughs) But I would meet with students and when the subject of the priesthood of all believers would come up, in their uh, ongoing arguments, that was being used by some to say we like this, I believe in the priesthood of all believers. I understand that to mean every Christian can interpret the Bible the way they want to. You ever heard that? Oh, I heard it. I heard it all over the place. The priesthood of all believers. Therefore, if you think 1 Peter 1 means this, and you think it means that, and you think it means this, and they're all different views, well, because we believe in the priesthood of all believers, then all the views are right. That is not, that is not the truth that came out of the Protestant Reformation. I don't think there's anything in Scripture to teach that. And the phrase doesn't mean that. Not in its historical context, and certainly not in the context here. Here's what I understand from the Bible what it means. Through Christ, we now have direct direct access to the Father. I don't need Father so-and-so over here to be my mediator between me and God. I can go directly into the presence of God through Christ, who is the high priest. In the Old Testament, first the the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that they carried around in the, the wilderness and set up, and then later in the temple there were three courts. The most inner court, the Holy of Holies, that contained the the box, the container of the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, along with some other items, only the high priest could enter there once a year. Now, at the death of Christ, the the curtain that separated that from the next court was torn. It was ripped from top to bottom. That was demonstrating that now, because of Christ, we have access to the Father. No more animal sacrifices are necessary. No more human priests are necessary. Why? Because Jesus, through Jesus, we are a priesthood. But we are called as priests to do what the priests did. What did they do? They offered sacrifices. So we find this... Are y'all still with me? Come on. All right, y'all stick with me. Take a breath. This is deep water. I know know it is. I'm trying to make it as comprehensible as, as we can. But what did the priests do? They offered sacrifices. That was their primary role. You find this language all through the New Testament for Christian obligations, such as Romans 12.1. You know this verse. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. That's priestly language. Present yourself to God as a sacrifice. That means everything you do with your own body is to be done as an act of worship to God, whether you eat whether you drink, whether you drive a car, whether you make a meal, whether you read a book, whether you hammer a nail, whether you play basketball, whether you mend a shirt, whether you perform surgery, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Also in Hebrews 13, it says we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That's priestly language. We are to praise God with our lips in corporate worship and private worship. In Hebrews 13, it says, 
do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices. There's the word again. Sacrifices. God is pleased. When you love others, when you give, when you share, when you meet the needs of others, that is being part of the priesthood of all believers, that we are now part of this race. They led people also. They made God known. I must press on. Verses 9 and 10 says, We are a chosen race. It's not based on skin color, black, white, red, yellow. It's from all peoples, all cultures, who are now aliens and strangers in the world. And that choice was strictly based on God's design. Why did God choose the Hebrews in the Old Testament? Was it because of their numbers? No. Was it because of their strength? No. Why does he choose us as part of his church? Because of his grace, not because he looked down the tube of time and said, well, there's Joe and there's Sally. I see that he's going to be really, really spiritually minded and she's going to have a great heart for God. Now, based on what I see, therefore I'll choose him. No. He didn't see anything like that. It was entirely grace. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The most well-known passage on this is from Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, we love that passage, for in it, the Apostle Paul takes us through salvation from eternity past into eternity future. It was never written to be a theological point of debate. The purpose of that passage is to make the believer's heart warm with gratitude and awe at what God has done. We had a preacher here years ago from England, John Blanchard, and he did something with that passage I'll never forget. He said, if you should ask me, how it is possible that I should stand glorified with my Lord, the answer is that I am justified. If you should ask me how it is possible that I should be justified, I would answer you that I was called. And if you ask me why I should be called, the answer is that I was predestined. And if you should ask me why I was predestined, the answer is he loved me. And if you should ask me why he loved me, I have no answer. My words give way to worship, he said. We are a holy nation, and we have a purpose. The purpose is in verse 9. I told the early service I have one contact, and I've got to get a better brand because every week they seem to be getting worse. (laughs) A holy nation that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to proclaim the excellencies of God. The word translated proclaim means to advertise, to tell out. Because people are in darkness, they do not know the excellencies of God, but they should see them and hear them from us. You look for opportunities to share your faith with others. Just small things. I heard one person say, my intention is not to close the deal. That's the way he put it. My intention is to put a stone in people's shoe. Meaning I want every conversation where I can introduce something that will just make the person think a little bit about God. 
John Piper wrote somewhere, I don't remember where I wrote down the quotation, he said, our identity is not an end in itself, but for the sake of introducing others to him. He has given us our identity in order that his identity might be proclaimed through us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Verse 9 says, we are a people of God's own possession. We belong to God, Christian. And before I finish, I have got an invitation for you if you don't know Christ. Today you're invited, and you don't need a written invitation, but God invites you to put your trust in Christ as your Redeemer, not to stumble over this rock, but to build your life upon it, for him to be the cornerstone of your life. He will give you new life. He will transfer you from darkness to light. And when you do that, you belong to him. The value of even the most common thing is increased if it's owned by someone significant. I read something funny somewhere this week uh, that it was said to a celebrity, I can tell you how to increase the value of everything you own. And they said, how? And they said, die. <laughs> you know, like this ring belonged to this dead movie star or this dead celebrity. Uh, I thought it was funny. Obviously, y'all didn't, but... <laughs> I read that Napoleon's toothbrush sold for $21,000. An awful thing. Who would want to put that in their mouth? But it was owned by Napoleon and it had great value. The desk where Winston Churchill sat and studied, from what I understand, is priceless. It's beyond price. You cannot buy it because Churchill owned it, not because it has any inherent value. I read yesterday that Paul McCartney's first guitar probably cost less than $10. It sold four years ago for $400,000. Why? It belonged to Paul McCartney. A house once lived in by Ernest Hemingway, a bed slept in by George Washington. Ordinary items that become priceless in some cases, not because they have worth in and of themselves, but because of who owned them. You are a people for God's own possession. You have been purchased with a price. And you are not your own. You belong to him. And therefore, you have inestimable value. Let's pray together. Father, your overarching plan in carrying out the plan of salvation as you are doing now, as you have been doing, as you will continue to do all over the world, uh, is weighty. And it's uh, a Mount Everest to try and grasp it. We thank you that we are part of it. We pray that we would be stones in that building, living stones, and that we would uh, do our best, humanly speaking, by the power of your Spirit to proclaim the excellencies of you who are building this. Pray for any others here that today, maybe Christ has been a stumbling block. Maybe they think this is uh, ludicrous. Maybe they think that to believe in Christ would be to become a religious nut. And Father, we would pray that you would, I pray you'd open eyes, that you transfer, even right now, people from darkness to light and by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.